Hi, everyone. Today we've got a really fun guest. Um, my friend Jean Driscoll. Um, she's a former wheelchair racer. Um, she won the Boston Marathon eight times. She's a five-time gold medalist. Um, and she's an activist for people with disabilities around the world. Um, and she has spina bifida like me. Um, and we actually got connected when I was baby, although I only found out about that a couple years ago. Um, so, yeah. Um, well, Charlotte, do you want to you want to tell that story? It's real quick. It would be much more anything that. Sorry. Quite honestly, what's wrong with your technology? Uh, it would be much more anything that. We'll pause there for a second. Apparently, we're having technical yeah, difficulties. Yeah, I'm sorry. I just closed it's... it. All right, we'll just keep going and we can cut part of that out. So, Charlotte, yeah. why don't you tell us, you know, a little so, bit about the about that story about how you got so connected? I don't know I the full details of it, but my grandpa, his dad, um was working in St. Louis when I was born. Um, and somehow he had a connection, a coworker who had a connection to Gene. Um, I, th I think it was actually someone in Springfield. Oh, is it Springfield? I think so, um, yeah. Might have been Springfield. I didn't know where, yeah. I don't know where he was working <laughs> when I was born. Yeah. Um, who had, but he had a coworker who had a connection to Gene and I guess yeah. told Gene that my grandpa had had a granddaughter born with spina bifida. Um, so she reached out to him and gave him a signed book um, <laughs> that I discovered. Somehow no one told me the story, so I discovered this book a couple yeah. years ago. Um, and then went on a long journey via social media to find Gene. Um, which is not easy because Jean is not on social media. Um, but I have not very often. <laughs> and like three different people reached out to her about me. And I finally found her email and reached out to her a couple of years ago. So we finally got connected. Yeah, it's a great story. Mm -hmm. um, we still have yet to meet in person. Um, feel like that should happen at some point, seeing as I live only three hours away now. <laughs> Um, it seems more reasonable than when you were in West Virginia. Yeah, yeah. and my grandparents live in Springfield, so. Aha. Um, Which is only an hour and a half away, not yeah. even. So. Uh, it's a great story, and I'm glad we connected. You were persistent. Yeah. <laughs> when I want something done, I will get it done. Yeah. Now, when I don't have the motivation, that's a different story. But if I'm motivated, I'll get it done. You and everybody else. If so. there's no motivation, it's probably not going to get done. Yes. <laughs> um, so I guess, can you um, tell us a little bit about your early life and just growing up with Spine Bifida and then how you developed a love for sports um, and then how that led to wheelchair racing? That could be like a whole hour speech. <laughs> <laughs> well, I so I was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 
uh, in the mid-1960s at a time when nearly half the babies born with spina bifida died because of infection or other secondary complications. Also, 85% of babies born with spina bifida also have hydrocephalus. I was among the 50% who lived and among the 15% who did not have hydrocephalus. But along with the hole in my spine, I also had a cleft palate. So I like to tell people that upon my birth, I was a holy baby. I had a hole in the roof of my mouth. I had a hole in my back. I was a holy baby. <laughs> it's interesting that before I smiled for the first time or even said my first word, Doctors immediately put limitations on my life. Maybe your parents experienced that with you too, Charlotte. But they told my parents I would never walk. I would never go through a regular school system. And I'd probably be dependent on them my entire life. The good thing about little kids is they don't know what they are and aren't supposed to do. <laughs> they just explore their world and they do what they can do. Yeah. And so when I was two years old, we had this wooden giraffe on wheels and I grabbed onto the back of it and started walking. And my mom, who was a nurse, realized that with below the knee leg braces, I could probably walk around. <laughs> and when it came time to go to school, I went to the same neighborhood schools that my older sister attended, that my three younger brothers eventually would attend. And in terms of being dependent on my parents my entire life. I actually moved out when I was 17 to go to school and uh, uh, they were chasing me around the world once I got into sports. Yeah. So yeah. none of those limitations held true. And I'm yeah. pretty sure that there's limitations they put on you that didn't hold true as yeah. well. I mean, no basis. I don't know if that's appropriate, but I'm one of a few people that, has never won braces. Um, so lucky you, um, lucky you. Yeah, and it's kind of weird because I feel like I'm caught between two worlds because of that. Um, like when I first found the spine buffet to me, I felt like I didn't belong, and I didn't, because of that I didn't feel like I belonged in either the spine buffet world or the able body world. Um, because I saw so many people in the spine buffet community who are wheelchair users, brace users, and such, but. Um, now I've been involved for four years, almost five years, um, and I've become very involved, um, and I feel, most of the time I feel like I belong now. I still have my moments, but I think everyone probably does, um, so I feel well, I like... Well, I know you're an advocate, and yes. you've gone to, uh, legislative days, and, yes. uh... Yes, I'm getting you involved are absolutely in... part of the community. Yes, and I'm very excited. I'm now getting involved in the Illinois Spine Bifida community um, on the state level. Um, so, um, yeah, um, I think. I did want to say, you know, Gene, we, we did hear some of those things as parents. Um, yeah. Th yeah, th there were, um, it was we did have some good care providers where Charlotte was born. Uh, for very, we were very fortunate um, that she I, had one of the best neurosurgeons, my, I think. My dad, my mom still loves, still says that he is her favorite doctor of well, all time. And 
she was not happy when he left. He did. He, he actually went yeah. to Lloyd in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We did yeah. not live in Chicago at the time. So. Yeah. But, um, and I don't think yeah. he stayed working with Spaba for the patients. But There was mm-hmm. also just a lot of unknowns. They didn't know what was going to happen, you know. And so Charlotte, you know, like you mentioned, um, she didn't know what she could or couldn't do. <laughs> and, yeah. I will say, I was probably... I've always been a little less of adventurous than my brother. Um, so <laughs> I have to throw that out. He definitely does not know. And has never you know what's interesting, but, though? When you um, have a child yeah. who is born with a disability, uh, spina bifida, uh, I even have friends with cerebral palsy uh, who, mm-hmm. you know, uh, acquired their disability right at birth. Um, the... Yeah. The message is, here's what you can't do. But I also have friends with spinal cord injuries later in life. And Mm -hmm. their message was, here's everything you can still do. So Mm -hmm. why are there different messages for babies born with a disability and those who acquire disabilities later in life? Yeah. We talked to there should be a consistent message. Yeah. Yeah. We talked to someone recently um, who had a great story about here's what you still can do. Um, That was that. That was a blind hockey player, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, That was really, really amazing. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I guess how did I guess we'll talk about how you. Um, how did you get into wheelchair racing? So when I was growing up as one of five kids, I couldn't help but be competitive. <laughs> we were, we fought over food, dessert, <laughs> um, you know, uh, the best seat, uh, uh, the, the couch or the chair in the living room. If you didn't get that, you were on the floor. We fought over everything. <laughs> So I was competitive just because of the house in which I grew up. Um, but because I walked, I didn't think sport was going to be uh, something real for me, too. I would shoot hoops with my siblings in the backyard. There was a fence I could hold on to so that I could get balance. Mm-hmm. And then I learned my one-handed shot. I had no idea it would come in handy years <laughs> later. Um when all the neighborhood kids and my siblings were doing running races, uh, I'd be the person who said, on your marks, get set, stop, or go. Uh, <laughs> but then I would challenge everybody to crawling races because I could crawl faster than anybody, and I didn't have full sensation in my knees. So the dirt balls, the rocks, the sticks, it didn't hurt me when my <laughs> knees got scraped up. And so I won those races. But yeah. um When I was a freshman in high school, I was uh, coming home from a babysitting job on my bike, and I took a corner too sharp, fell on my hip, and my hip dislocated, Mm -hmm. and it dislocated because of the weak lower body musculature from the spina bifida, Mm -hmm. and so over the next year, I had five major hip operations and spent the year in a body cast, and none of the surgeries worked, so I had to Mm -hmm. start walking on crutches Mm -hmm. and using a wheelchair. And I was devastated at first because I thought it was going to limit me. I thought these were barriers. The doctor was supposed to make me better, not worse. My doctor was the team doctor for the Milwaukee Bucks National Basketball Association team. Hmm. How come he could fix them and not me? 
I just didn't understand. But I didn't really understand spina bifida very (laughs) well uh, when I was growing up. I knew it was an open spine. Uh, What does that mean? You know, I didn't understand how everything connects. So anyway, um, I my bike accident was freshman year of high school. um, And so I missed most of freshman year and half a sophomore year, I had a tutor coming to the house, but she didn't, um, I, I didn't keep up with the pace of the college prep school where I began. So for junior and senior year, I went to a different school that was a public school. It required eight fewer credit hours. So I'd be able to graduate on time. Mm-hmm. And when I got to this new school, there was another kid with spina bifida who also mm-hmm. used a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. I never went to school with anybody else who had a disability, but uh, this guy had spina bifida, used a wheelchair, invited me to come play wheelchair soccer. I turned him down the first, second, third time he invited me. I did not want to go hang out with those wheelchair people. They're weird. And I wasn't one of them. I could walk on crutches. I wasn't, you know, I didn't have to use the wheelchair all the time. Uh, So he started asking me in September of my junior year, And in May of my junior year, I thought the only way I'm going to get this guy off my back is to go to a a soccer practice. And I knew I wasn't going to like it, but I'd go to one practice and I'd be done. Get him off my back. Well, I went to the soccer (laughs) practice and it was nothing like I thought it was going to be. Chairs are crashing and banging. Bodies are flying. Mm -hmm. I thought this is sport. This is really sport. And after wheelchair soccer, I found out about wheelchair football and wheelchair ice hockey and uh, even square dancing. You can swing your partner really fast. It was a blast. (laughs) So uh, eventually I got recruited to play wheelchair basketball at the University of Illinois, got involved in the wheelchair track and road racing program as well. Uh, There's so much more to the story. I mean, when I was in Milwaukee, There are people who believed in me, who helped me uh, stay in sport because I had one of those old hospital model chairs and the welds weren't very good. And so one day I came back from practice and um, one brake had had broken off. And then a couple of weeks later, another brake had broken off. And my mom said, we cannot afford to have you bust up this chair. You cannot go back and do uh, the, the, the wheelchair sports. We can't afford that. And the person who ran the program in which I was involved, uh, at the time it was Cindy Owens. Now it's Cindy Hausner, who was the founder of the Great Lakes Adapted Sports Association up in Gurney, Illinois. Hmm. She talked to my parents and said, Jean really needs this. If it gets to a point where she needs a chair, we will make sure that uh, she has a chair and that uh, the one she uses now uh, is not going to be broken beyond use. And so Cindy really helped keep me in the game. And then ultimately uh, I got recruited to the University of Illinois and boy, things really took off from there. Hmm. Um, and I guess, can we talk about how you got involved with marathons (laughs) we can talk about how i got involved in the marathon so when i came to illinois i was a dual sport athlete i was competing in wheelchair basketball and wheelchair track and road racing all i did was go to class study do homework and work out that was my life the other college students in the dorm they were talking about all the different bars 
I had no idea where they were located. I used to get teased because of that. But my racing coach, Marty, thought I should do a marathon. <laughs> I thought, I, I mean, who wants to do a 26.2 mile race? Not me. I had no interest. I did a half marathon, 13.1 miles to try to appease him. It didn't work. <laughs> so I thought, just like that kid in high school, the only way I'm going to get coach off my back is to do one marathon. I will do one marathon. It took coach two years to talk me into doing a marathon. But finally, I thought the only way I'm going to get beyond this is to just do a marathon. So I started training for the Chicago Marathon. Suddenly, the workouts got twice as long. And I hated it. I hated it. I love the 10K road races, the 6.2 mile races. I did not want to do a marathon. I couldn't wait until it was done. And so I go up to Chicago with my teammates. I'm hoping for third place. The race starts and I come across the finish line. Uh, and my coach comes up to me and says, Gene, you finished seven seconds under two hours and you qualified to do the Boston Marathon. And I was like, I am never doing another marathon. <laughs> my hands had blistered. They were bleeding yeah. through my gloves. My muscles were so sore. I thought it was going to take the rest of my life to recover. I was like, I am not doing another marathon. I promised you I would do one marathon. Well, my coach was from the South Shore of Boston. There was no getting out of it. He's like, Gene, people dream about doing Boston. You can't qualify and not go. So next spring, I'm a senior in college. Our women's wheelchair basketball team had won the national championship. We finally beat the perennial champions, Minnesota. We were the champions. And 10 days later, I'm on the starting line of the Boston Marathon. Champaign, Illinois is as flat as your table. <laughs> Yeah. The Boston yep. Marathon is famous for its hills. So I'm sitting on the starting line yelling at my coach under my breath because I didn't <laughs> think I belonged in the race. I didn't think I was going to finish it. I was going to die somewhere in the middle. I didn't have the confidence. Um, but the race started and my goal was to finish in third place. My teammate, I, we were setting her up to win. She was killing me in all the workouts. Uh, there was Connie Hansen from Denmark. She had won the Boston Marathon the year before and had broken the world record. And then there was me. And I thought I was, thought I was kind of being overconfident, but I was hoping for third place. Mm -hmm. So um, at mile nine, my teammate Ann got away from Connie and I. Uh, so then I was vying for second place. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm with Connie Hansen. At mile 17 is the steepest hill on the course you take a right hand turn by a firehouse and you are crawling up this hill it is so steep and I noticed that I started gapping Connie and I'm like oh my gosh I'm actually in second place <laughs> and then little by little I noticed I was catching up to my teammate Anne and I didn't realize that heartbreak hill which is a series of hills 
miles 19 to 21. I didn't realize that I was catching up to Ann in the middle of Heartbreak Hill. And so at mile 20, I said, Ann, I've caught up with you. And she said, well, why don't you come up to the front and take a pull in wheelchair racing, just like like, just like cycling mm-hmm. and car racing, we utilize drafting no. and we would take turns. The person in the front is the one who's working into the wind and the person who's sitting in the back gets a little break from the wind. The person in the front is the one who's protecting them, but there's an unwritten rule and everybody's supposed to take their turn at the front if they sit in the back. So I was up front. I was up front for what seemed like a long time. And all of a sudden I realized Anne had fallen back. (gasps) Oh my gosh, I'm in first place. (laughs) All of a sudden I got an adrenaline boost and I had this little cycle computer on my chair. It told me miles per hour, Uh average speed time, distance, and I started calculating, I was under world record time. I was under Connie's world record time from the year before. I checked it again at mile 24, mile 25, mile 26. And when I came across the finish line of my first Boston Marathon, I broke the world record by almost seven minutes. Wow. 26.2 miles earlier, I didn't think I belonged in the race. <laughs> and at this point, I'm so grateful that my coach, Marty, didn't let me settle. Yeah. He forced me out of my comfort zone and made me do something I never, ever, ever would have done on my own. And it changed my life. It changed my life. Wheelchair sports are not governed under the NC2A. And so years ago when we were winning money, we could keep it. And because I broke the world record and the course record at the Boston Marathon, I won $25,000. I got to keep it. I wasn't mad at my coach anymore. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It was amazing. But you know, the next year I went to Boston and I thought, well, last year was a fluke. Anne will win. But last year was pretty fun. I ended up winning my second Boston and breaking the world record a second time and winning $25,000 again. And then I went back the next year and I won again and I broke the world record again. The first five times I did the Boston Marathon, I broke the world record every time. And the first seven times I did the Boston Marathon, I won it consecutively. It was amazing. Nobody had ever, ever, ever won the Boston Marathon eight times in any division. So when I went back in 1997, my eighth Boston Marathon um, was such a high goal because nobody had done that before. And I crashed. I crashed. I ended up finishing second, but I crashed. So then the next year I went back and I ended up being in a final sprint with, uh, well, actually, no, uh, I was in the final stretch of the Boston Marathon and I lost focus and I heard the finish line announcer announcing Jane Driscoll, eight time winner of the Boston Marathon. So I let up on my final sprint and I started to raise my arms to cut the tape and my rival from Australia, Louise Savage, came to cut the tape two-tenths of a second before me. I lost that race by two-tenths of a second. Wow. Everybody thought she was a man because her hair was all tucked up under her helmet. That was such a painful loss. That's the hardest yeah. loss I've yeah. ever experienced. The next year, 
She beat me in a final sprint by half a second. So in 2000, I knew that was going to be my last year of competition. Mm -hmm. I knew I was going to retire after that. I was losing the fire. I was losing the fire to train the way you need to train. Mm -hmm. Uh, but everybody thought, oh, you know, Jean's lost three times in a row. Her best years are behind her. This is mm -hmm. Louise's race. When you go in as an underdog, that's a way better place to go. You don't yeah. have to do as many events. You don't have to do as many press conferences. You're flying under the radar and you don't have the same kind of pressure. And so in 2000, I won my eighth Boston Marathon. <laughs> I finally got number eight. That's amazing. <laughs> do you do you think Jean, that it was because of those three years and and having such close, you know, finishes that um, that it was even a little more sweeter, maybe? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I I cherish every victory. Mm -hmm. uh, I I remember every victory. Uh, when I broke the world record it, for the fifth time in a row, um, I had food poisoning three day, <laughs> two days before that. I should have gone faster. I got sick three times during the race, and I still broke the world record. Um, I was in such phenomenal shape that, like, I wanted a 90-minute marathon. That was my goal, and I never met that goal. And now the women are going faster than that. The glove technology has changed. Uh, and they're going faster, but, um, that eighth win, oh my gosh, I was thanking the Lord in the shower and everybody else. It was so <laughs> glorious. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. I think it just really highlights perseverance, resilience, you know, having some of that, you know, adversity and, and challenge, you know, from the previous three years. Um, it's just amazing, a, a fantastic story. But it's also an analogy in life. Like when I was walking with my leg braces, I didn't have good balance. I was falling down all the time. But every time I fell down, I got back up. Every time I fell down. And you always hear people talk about, uh, you know, falling off the horse, getting back on. I think, um, you know, the most successful people are the ones who keep getting back up after they've fallen and there's all there are always things to learn when you don't meet your goals when you fall short of something you really wanted there's always something to glean from that and and so those three years sure created a lot of drama for yeah. number eight <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. yeah that's uh, terrific um i guess you've talked about some cool stories um so ofa but which one's your favorite like olympics marathons whatever like what's your favorite race story well i'm glad you asked that question because i was so proud to represent the usa in the olympic games and the paralympic games now the olympic games used to have two wheelchair exhibition events, hmm. an 800 meter event for women, which is two laps around the track, and a 1500 meter met event for men, which is almost four laps around the track. Um, Juan Antonio Samaranch was the president of the International Olympic Committee and he loved the wheelchair races. And so he had them as exhibition events uh, not in, in 1984, 88, 92, 
96, 2000, and I think 2004 was the last time. And then there was a new president who came into the IOC and he had a different interest in an exhibition sport. Um, we're in USA. I was so proud here in my country's anthem. I was so proud with all of that. The Boston Marathon still is my favorite. It still um, has has bigger memories, fonder memories. You know, on the track, um, there are several events. And so I did the longer distance events, the 1500, the 5,000, the 10,000 and the marathon. And so you had uh, a lot of different events. Um, and, and so it was fun because you had more of an opportunity to win multiple times. <laughs> but the Boston Marathon is, uh, there's nothing like it. There, you know, it's uh, 26.2 miles of spectators. And when you get halfway through, you pass Wellesley College, which is an all women's college, the pitch of the crowd changes. It gets very high, very soprano. Um, it, oh, but it, the energy there is just so incredible. When I was competing in the Paralympic Games, at the time I was competing, hardly anybody in the US knew what the Paralympic Games were. Now, mm -hmm. most people know what they are. Mm -hmm. But back when I was competing, hardly anybody knew. And so the stands were mostly empty at mm -hmm. the Paralympic Games at Boston. Like I said, you've got spectators every mile, the mm -hmm. 26 miles, the fans are well-informed. Now, during the Olympic exhibition events, packed, packed crowds. Mm -hmm. uh, the night that Michael Johnson won, uh, set the world record and won the gold medal in the 200 in his golden shoes in yeah. Atlanta, uh, was the night that I got uh, my Olympic medal for competing uh, earlier in the day in the 800. Now I got a silver medal um, and 800 meters twice around the track, that's a sprint. I was delighted to get a medal because that was not my, the, my strength. Um, but when Louis Sauvage was announced for the gold medal, uh, the American crowd clapped politely. But when I was announced with the silver medal, 86,000 people stood up. Oh, it was such amazing. a rush. It was amazing and incredible. And, you know, I'm so, so humbled and excited that I was inducted into the Olympic Hall of Fame in 2012. I, I mean, I was blown away by that experience, too. Um, and for some reason, the ceremony was in Chicago. So my family from Wisconsin was able to come and my friends from Champaign were able to come yeah. and there were a lot of people who got to celebrate with me. Yeah. So um, both are really, really, really special, but they're special in different ways. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess um Yeah. Oh, um, so I think you touched on this a little bit. Um, you mentioned, um, the gloves and, um, and how that's helped, you know, maybe a little bit. Um, I was just wondering, you know, since you, um, stopped, um, competing, what have you seen any, any changes, um, in the sports 
Um, I, I would say both that, you know, that are helping. Um, um, but also if there's anything out there that's making things more challenging as well. Well, uh, the racing chair technology has changed. Uh, there are people in carbon fiber form fitted uh, racing chairs, at least that's the seat in which they're sitting. And then yeah. uh, the rest of the frame is built around them. Uh, the gloves are made with uh, thermoplastic material and form fitted to your hand. Um, when I was competing, my coach actually invented uh, the new pushing stroke that we use. And that's why I kept getting faster and faster and faster because uh, my coach was an exercise physiologist and he, we were the most fit guinea pigs in the world. Mm. He was constantly doing research, biomechanical yeah. research. We had grad assistants, um, uh, VO2 max. I can't tell you how many times I had uh, a hose connected mm -hmm. to me and they were measuring the volume of oxygen. Um, these days, um, uh, the, the chair technology and the glove technology has definitely uh, allowed people to go faster. Even the helmets are, are um, more advanced than they were uh, when I was competing. I don't even want to say how long ago it was, uh, even <laughs> though I've already said it. I mean, it's yeah. crazy to think that it's been 23 years since my last race. I, I, I don't feel that old. I mean, it yeah. seems like 10 years ago, you yeah. know? I feel like it's crazy. I'm going to be 20 soon. I, yes, I can't, I, mean, I can't believe that either. <laughs> Yeah. Well, hopefully dad can relate to these numbers yeah. better than yeah. Charlotte. He's 50 yeah. now. He's yeah. 50 I, now. I know what you're saying, Dan. It doesn't feel yeah. like, you know, some of those memories in the early 2000s um, or the end of the decade of the 90s. I mean, it yeah. just I'm at the doesn't point. seem that far away. I'm like, when 2020 hit, I'm like, okay, that's a different decade. That's 20, not 10. <laughs> and yeah. 30, not 20. It's like, it was weird for me hitting a new, de new decade because I guess the last time I'd hit a new decade was um, when I was seven. So. so I was already retired from racing by the, for several years by the time you were born. That's crazy. Yeah. So I have a uh, – oh, sorry. Go ahead, Charlie. Uh, as, are you talking about racing? Or, no, go ahead. Um, I was going to get into – um, what your life is, what you do outside of racing. Um, I guess, can you, can you talk about your activism in the U.S. and around the world? Um, I know you do stuff in the U.S. and Ghana and in other places too. When I was at the 2000 Paralympic Games in Sydney, um, I met somebody named Johnny Erickson Tata, and she was a, a woman who was quadriplegic, and she had a world-renowned ministry called Johnny and Friends, and um, she was the guest chaplain during the Paralympic Games that year, and when I wasn't, when I wasn't competing, I went to the Bible study she was leading, and we had both known about each other but we met in Sydney, Australia. <laughs> and uh, I had shared with her that I was going to be retiring after the Sydney games. And one of the programs in her organization is called Wheels for the World. And they collect wheelchairs across the U.S. 
send them to one of 20 prisons where inmates restore them to like new condition. And then the wheelchairs are distributed in places where they're scarce commodities. It's a very powerful program. One of the prisoners, there was a documentary about the program and one of the prisoners said for the first time in his life, he's doing something positive with his hands. I was like, wow, that's amazing. That's incredible. So um, Johnny had one of her staff members, the guy that was the director of Wheels for the World, call me uh, about three months after I retired and asked if I would go to Ghana, West Africa with Johnny and friends to teach a wheelchair track camp. It's like, Africa? I've seen the specials. I've seen the documentaries. Uh, I don't think it's accessible. It's mm -hmm. probably very dirty. I know there's a lot of poverty. Uh, politely said no. Yeah. And then he called back a second time. And I politely said no. There's this <laughs> pattern in my life. Yeah. People are persistent enough. Mm -hmm. uh, somehow I end up going along with these things. <laughs> and so I finally agreed to go to Ghana, West Africa in 2001 to teach this wheelchair track camp. I was over there during 9-11. And... Um, they told us we were going to have to stay there an extra five weeks. Mm. I was devastated because I am a spoiled American. I was ready to come home after two and a mm -hmm. half weeks. I did not want to stay for another five weeks. We ended up only needing to stay an extra five days, but it was a very scary time. But I was in the track on the first day of the track camp. There were 32 people who came and there were seven somewhat antiquated racing chairs that I got from Eagle Sports Chairs uh, to bring with me over to Ghana, West Africa. Eagle Sports Chairs was my equipment sponsor throughout my entire racing career. And um, only six of the racing chairs were functional. One of them had a flat tire and I don't think I, I brought enough extra tires. So out of those 32 people, most of them had disabilities because of polio. Here in the oh, US, wow. we don't see yeah. polio so much. Yeah. Right, but right. there, it's still endemic. They don't yeah. have the vaccine mixed right all the time. Mm -hmm. So I was expecting people to limp into the stadium. I was expecting to see people on crutches. I was expecting that maybe a lucky few uh, would have gotten a wheelchair in the distributions by Johnny and Friends. What I was not expecting were the people who crawled two to three blocks from the hostel where they were staying on their hands and knees into the stadium. They were wearing sandals on their hands and the calluses on their knees were as thick as calluses mm. on the bottom of people's feet. And I was stunned. And I flashed back to when I got my first wheelchair and those crutches, when the doctor told me none of the surgeries worked and I was going to have to start using a wheelchair for long distances, I was so angry. I wouldn't touch the chair. I wouldn't touch the crutches. I, I went for weeks without doing anything, just moping around. And so I'm watching these people crawl into the stadium and I flash back and I was thinking, wow, even though I didn't want it, I never had the indignity of crawling on the ground. I've mm -hmm. always had a chair, always been up off the ground. Yeah. And so right in that moment, my life's mission became to help get people up off the ground, literally and figuratively. Yeah. And it's amazing how those things happen. It was in an instant. So in 2002, 
they didn't have to talk me into going back to Ghana. I volunteered. <laughs> I went back and I taught another wheelchair track camp. And in 2003, um, I was speaking uh, to some rotary clubs in Champaign-Urbana, Savoy, Illinois, um, and they all agreed to, uh, to help raise money to bring some of those wheelchair athletes from Ghana here to the U.S. It was an idea that I had on the airplane flying back in 2002. Uh -huh. And so there were five rotary clubs, one in the capital city of Ghana, that city is called Accra, and four here in the Champaign-Urbana-Savoy area. We raised $30,000, they raised $30,000, and then one of the Rotarians wrote a matching funds grant. All of a sudden we had $60,000. We brought eight of those wheelchair athletes, two able-bodied coaches here to the U.S., and we had custom-made everyday wheelchairs built for each of the athletes and custom-made oh, wow. racing chairs. And then in 2004, it was an Olympic Paralympic year in Athens. And for the first time in history, Ghana had one male and one female go to the Paralympic Games. That's amazing. For the first time, they had a flag in the opening ceremonies. So Johnny and friends sent one of their camera crews there to document this incredible experience. And Raphael, the male, and Ajara, the female, were interviewed. Um, Raphael got polio. He was the only male in his family. He was allowed to continue his education. Ajara, on the other hand, got polio in fourth grade. It was deemed she had no value. There's no sense educating her. No more education. She had to go beg on the streets. She was abused. Um, I don't even know everything that happened, but um, she had a very, very, very difficult life. And so Johnny and friends asked her, Achari, you're the first female to represent Ghana at the Paralympic Games. You've been to America something many Africans mm. dream about. How has your life changed? And she said, now my family talks to me. Mm. Now I'm invited to family meals. They would, you know, in, in Ghana, they cook outside over an open fire for the most part. And they would put food on a plate and slide it and sh over across the ground and she would eat with the dogs. Now she's invited to family meals. Yeah. Oh my gosh. You talk about powerful. Yeah. Um, you know, I we've all had struggles, but not like that. And so it be it it became so much bigger than sport, so yeah. much bigger than the Olympic and Paralympic Games, so much more than um than winning and losing. The winning and losing even took on a whole different meaning. And so I have stayed involved with uh with some of those athletes. And uh a couple of years ago during COVID, somehow Raphael made his way here to the US. Um, and he was training with the University of Illinois wheelchair racing team. This was two years ago, so I think things were opening up a little bit. Mm -hmm. He stayed at my house for a month. And I was working remotely. I was driving him to campus every day for workouts. And then one of the athletes would, um, well, I was, I was going to pick him up initially. And then one of the athletes started to, to drop him off, but I live, uh, five miles away from campus. So, yeah. um, I've continued to invest in them. That's hmm. amazing. Yeah. Just, yeah. Go ahead, yeah. Um, 
I was going to say, is there a way for people to get involved with Wheels for the World if they would like to? Yeah, if they go to johnnyandfriends.org, J-O-N-I and friends, no spaces, J-O-N-I, johnnyandfriends.org, uh, they have all of their programs on that website and wheels for the world is one of them uh they take trips to romania uh uh russia although i don't think they're going to russia so much right now uh, um challenging yeah. Yeah, yeah um yeah. you know other african and asian nations mm -hmm. um and so people can sign up to volunteer one of the cool things too about wheels for the world is um you know i was doing the wheelchair uh, racing camp, the wheelchair track camp. But while I was doing that, the real purpose of Wheels for the World was to provide wheelchairs and crutches and walkers to people who need them. And so there are uh, physical therapists, occupational therapists, um, doctors, people who are mechanically inclined, who volunteer to go on these worlds, Wheels for the World outreaches. And so um, there are people who are making cushions right there and then. There are PTs who are teaching people how to walk on crutches, how to use the wheelchair, how to transfer. It's such an incredible <laughs> program. Um, and, you know, people, uh, if, if they can't walk, they're often hid away in back rooms. There are superstitions in a lot of places around the world that um, around disability and people believe that if you have a disability, you're cursed by God, you have no value, you don't belong in society, uh, you're cursed. Families don't want other people to know that somebody mm -hmm. with a disability is part of their family and they're hidden away in a back room for their entire lives. But if they have a wheelchair and they have a way to get around, uh, it makes it easier, it makes it a little better. Um, and so uh, this Wheels for the World really has changed the world for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, and if anyone's interested, we will leave the link to Johnny and Friends in the description box. Yeah. That's perfect. Um, Thank you. Yeah. So, um, uh, Jean, what, uh, what other challenges um, are out there and, and lie ahead? And if there's anything else that, you know, how people can help? Uh help with the program well any other programs or any other type of challenges that you Ways see that are out there people can get involved yeah. with the disabled what's me yeah well i mean there are all kinds of of different opportunities uh there are people who volunteer for uh you know for programs uh of, of people who are um, aging and have dementia. There are programs for people with autism. There are people in, who have uh, non-visible disabilities. We can't yep. hide our disabilities. They're visible. There's yep. no hiding it. So different people have different passions based on their life experiences. And so um, there are opportunities everywhere um, for, for people. You know, uh, I was an Easter Seals child when I was younger, <laughs> and there were Easter Seals camps, and there were camp counselors who worked throughout the summer. And um, the first time I went to an Easter Seals camp, I was eight years old. I had just finished third grade. And I overheard one of the counselors. My counselor's name was Sharon Town. It's amazing what you remember. <laughs> uh, she was a student at the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse. And 
she was talking to another counselor and said, Jean is really a leader. She's really a leader. It's the first time I ever heard anybody refer to me as a leader because back at home, you know, there were a hundred steps to get everywhere throughout my school. If I was the first one in line, I was still the last one who got to wherever because the teachers would walk fast and the students would walk fast. And I, Oh, it was so frustrating. Um, uh, so, um, I, I think that, um, another opportunity for, uh, individuals with disabilities, um, is to reach out to other people who are, uh, who are coming up in life behind them and, and helping to raise them up and helping to mentor them and provide perspective. And uh, mm-hmm. when I sign autographs, I sign dream big and work hard. Mm-hmm. I think no matter who you are, you have to see big things. If you don't see big things, then you're not going to do big things. You have to see mm-hmm. them first. And then mm-hmm. you have to put the work into it. You have to put the work in. There's no easy peasy. When I was training I was 4'11", I weighed 111 pounds, and my max bench press was 210 pounds. 210 pounds. I could almost bench press twice my weight. And so I love telling people that so that they know real work went into this. I wasn't just working out with 10-pound weights. I was going after the steel. And, uh, and it was hard work. I was training two to five hours a day, every day, two to three times a day, six days a week. It was a lifestyle. So when you're dreaming big and you're dreaming about eight Boston marathons and world records and Olympic and Paralympic medals, you've got to train two, three times Mm -hmm. a day. Got to put the work in, but whatever is important to you, you've got to put the work in and, you know, a disability is a characteristic like hair color and eye color. It's not a defining mm-hmm. principle. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't, it doesn't let us off the hook from anything. Um, so I, I want people yeah. to, to dream big, work hard, no matter who they are, and, and uh, see themselves uh, in excellence. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know think a lot of us have big dreams and sometimes we might have to do it a little bit differently but in a lot of cases not all we can still do it um I do think it's important to recognize the times where a disability might prevent us from doing certain things but in most cases we can do something even if we have to do it a little bit differently um, but whether you have a disability or not we all do things differently yeah if if you're yeah. walking and you're five one and you're in a grocery store and somebody puts something on a high shelf yeah uh, you know I'm not the only one looking for somebody to help get something off a high yep. shelf yeah. uh, so everybody figures out ways to compensate in order to level the playing field mm-hmm. absolutely yeah. Um, he's usually the one getting things off high shelves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank um, goodness for dad. Yeah. So, um, um, I guess, um, can you talk about, you know, I know you work at U of I now. Um, can you talk about what you're doing now and how you got, how things led to where you are, what you're doing now? 
So I work at the University of Illinois in the College of Applied Health Sciences. I'm the Assistant Dean for Advancement. I'm Dean Jean. And essentially, I lead the fundraising and alumni relations activities for the college. What's cool is the college has three academic units and two service units. Um, the two service units, one of them is all the services for students with disabilities. Even though they're located in one college, they provide services to students in every major across campus who uh, who needs support. And sometimes an accommodation is going into a study carol and reading questions aloud so that they better understand what's what's being read. For other people, an accommodation might be a longer time taking tests because they don't read very well. They're dyslexic. They have a learning disability. Um, and you know, uh, once accommodations are are set in place, it levels the playing field, and people are talented. Uh, so I get to travel around the state and around the country and meet with alumni and uh, people who donate to our academic units and our service units, um, people who care about uh, these areas. I get to provide updates. Uh, sometimes I get to introduce certain initiatives and research that's happening. When I was growing up, did I dream about being a fundraiser? No way. And when I first got a call asking if I would be interested in getting into fundraising, guess what my answer was? <laughs> thanks, but no thanks. Here's some other names. <laughs> but um, ultimately, I I tried it. and. It utilizes my entire skill set. My undergraduate degree was in communication. And of course, I have to communicate. But really what I do, I have to listen more than, than talk. And I love listening to people's stories. Um, but I need to write emails and I need to write proposals. And so the ability to, to write comes into handy. When I was uh, an athlete, uh, all the interviews that I did, having to answer questions um, uh, some people, uh, uh, answer them on their feet and I answer them on my seat, but you got to think quickly sometimes. Mm -hmm. And, um, so that was training and I didn't even realize it. Sometimes mm -hmm. people ask hard questions, uh, and I learned how to navigate those questions, uh, during, uh, all those years of, of interviews. So, um, I enjoy people. I enjoy learning about people. I think everybody could have a story, a book written about them. <laughs> yeah. We go to movies because we're interested in people, mm -hmm. not just avatars. We're also interested in people. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and so, uh, I'm in, I'm in a job that I never would have chosen for myself, which is just absolutely perfect for me. Well, that's amazing. Yeah. And I think you mentioned earlier that, you know, when you were, uh, you weren't totally convinced to do the marathon, but you eventually said yes, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, it's amazing, like, when we take these leaps, right? yeah. these challenges, we finally get convinced. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, we jump into something and you just never know where it's going to take us, you know, yeah. whether it's, you know, um, yeah. a job in fundraising or eight uh, Boston Marathon Championship. So 
Well, we both, we, well, we all know that, uh, the growth opportunities happen when you are not in your comfort zone, when you're in your comfort zone, it's comfortable. And when you're outside of that, it is not comfortable, but that's where you grow and, and you go to the next level. And so it took me a long, long time to trust that it was safe to be outside my comfort zone. I think a lot of people have a fear that they're not going to be safe and that they're not going to come out the other side if they allow themselves to move out of their comfort zone. But all throughout my life, I have had people who wouldn't let me settle and thank Mm -hmm. goodness. Yep. Um, So Charlotte, when your dad is yanking you out of your comfort (laughs) zone, you should say thank you. There you go. Um, So I think my dad has a question well, in Illinois and he wants to ask. I was just going to say if, you know, since you did, uh, you're from Wisconsin, mm-hmm. you've been in Illinois now. Um, and have this is you, not related to sports. Really. It's not related to sports, but, um, you know, over time, have you determined that Illinois is better than Wisconsin or should we just. Uh, I um, claim both states. Claim both states. Well, we're happy <laughs> I claim to have both you states. in Illinois. And I'm constantly educating. You know, when you're a person with a disability, you're constantly educating. Yeah. Um, yes. and, and when you're a person who lives in the Midwest, who understands the fierce rivalry between Wisconsin and Illinois, you're constantly <laughs> educating. I mean, uh-huh. when I first came down to Champaign, I didn't know there was anything south of Chicago. Illinois... Yeah was Chicago. And I still have many family members who believe that they don't like to drive in Chicago. They still diss on Chicago. Um, I I, I wouldn't want to live in Chicago just because of how big and and busy it is. But um, I like the Midwest better than other areas. So um, Mm -hmm. I, I claim both states now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we went, we went to Wisconsin, um, for skiing over the winter and yeah, we live oh, in What part fantastic. of Wisconsin? We we were at Cascade Mountain, just north oh, of Madison. Yep. Um, yeah. And we do have a trip to Milwaukee coming up for a concert. Yes. So, yeah. so oh, what concert? Well, we're going to um to see the Foo Fighters actually. Oh so, and, I've uh, met David Grohl. Oh my goodness. That would be that's, extreme. Oh, that's he he totally amazing. didn't care about who I was, but I introduced myself to him. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're they were a bucket list and it and they just it popped up that they were gonna be at um Harley Davidson is doing a music festival this summer. And so, uh so uh, yeah, I'm taking the kids up for a couple Are of you months. a Harley Davidson guy? I used to be. Yeah. Okay. More into camping and RVing now. Like that's one of our dreams. But um used to yeah. used to enjoy it. Yeah, I think it was fun to take off a new state. Um I still haven't been to Michigan. Um I was still uh, wanna go to Michigan now that we live kinda close. Yeah. Um You're close enough to get there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I like to travel. Um so I think we're getting off topic a here a little yeah, bit here. Okay. Yeah. I think. Well, well, um, I was supposed to call somebody at 7.30, so um, if, if there's right. uh, one more burning question, I'm happy to do it, but I need no, to... I think we're... Yeah, no, yeah. I, I, this has been terrific, Jean. We thank you yeah. for your time. Um, I've heard so much about you, so it's a it's a, <laughs> it's a privilege to finally get a chance to, to meet you. Yeah. Um, well, and, I've uh, enjoyed you. meeting you yeah. and spending time with Charlotte again. You asked 
excellent questions. Not a bad question in the bunch. Yeah. Uh, You're good learning. at this. You're good we're at learning. this. Yeah, yeah we're learning. <laughs> so it's yeah. definitely, I think, out of a comfort zone. Yeah. There so. You go. And, yeah. and so you're just going to keep getting better and better because of it. Yeah. Yeah. Stop recording. Yeah. Well, thanks, Jean. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. Um, thanks. Thank Good you to so spend much. time yeah. with you. Stop recording.